Welcome back to Those Happy Places, the podcast that treats theme parks, rides, and attractions like literature. I'm Buddy Duquesne. And I'm Alice White. And Alice, guess what? What? I hope you're not hungry because this episode is going to be talking about a lot of different delicious foods. Oh, man. You know, true story. Have not eaten dinner yet. Yeah, this me neither. This is going to be a difficult conversation to get through. <laughs> this is going to be tough. Um, uh, and so so let's just jump right in and let let's me let it. me give you kind of a thesis statement. Okay. Uh, theme parks and food have something of a weird, symbiotic, oddly iconic, uh, very, very important relationship that has its own layers of depth and meaning that I think is definitely worth talking about as a way of how the parks tell their stories. Um, And that's what I'm interested in exploring today is, like, where do these iconic foods come from? Why are they as iconic as they are? And ultimately, how do we weave food and eating, which are huge parts of visiting theme parks, into telling stories through attractions? So I hope you're ready to buckle up and and talk about some of these things with me. I absolutely am. And the first thing that I I, want to bring up uh, really fast, uh, something that just popped in my head, we're going to start talking about theme parks and food. If we cast our minds back to kind of some of the earliest theme parks or even the earliest uh, iterations of like themed uh, um, attractions and spaces. Um, uh, Three really prominent examples I can think of also like heavily revolved around food. I'm going to start with talking about uh, those happy places, favorite Knott's Berry Farm, which started as not just a, a berry farm, but as a restaurant. It was a chicken restaurant. And we wouldn't have Knott's Berry Farm if it weren't for the chicken restaurant, which is still on site, and the and the boysenberry, which Knott's Berry Farm pretty much invented. Uh, and, well, you know, popularized. <laughs> popularized, um, and 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 so so like food has always been an important part of Knott's Berry Farm, which is one of the America's oldest theme parks, right. and, a, and and a couple other. Um, of the of the really old theme parks, talking um, have a lot to do with food and have always had a lot to do with food. I'm gonna say um, Coney Island, for example. Uh, uh, hot dogs on Coney Island have been uh, a staple for uh, ever, for ever, for as long Literally as Coney Island's since been Coney around. Island's been a thing. Yeah, and and, to the point where every year the hot dog eating contest, the Nathan's hot dog eating contest on the 4th of July is held at Coney Island. Yep. In fact, I, I couldn't imagine I couldn't imagine visiting Coney Island, which is something I have not done yet, <laughs> and not getting a giant hot dog there. Yeah, or a bunch of little hot dogs, which is kind of more of the case. <laughs> <laughs> you just get just like, I think my little brother ate like 11 hot dogs in oh New York gosh. when he came to visit. That's a lot of hot dogs. Yeah, it was a lot of hot dogs just over the course of the day. I mean, he was like 18, so he was, you know, <laughs> He's he's eating a lot anyways, but yeah, like eleven little hot dogs over the over the course of the day. And just one more quick example of historic theme parks and food. And this one might be uh, not not necessarily a stretch, but definitely um, maybe something we're we're talking about on its own. But um, I want to talk about the World's Fair. Cool. And um, if you talk about iconic World's Fair, like first like 
you can talk about Disney's relationship with the World's Fair. You can talk about, um, uh, uh, you know, other inventions that have come out of World's Fairs, like Ferris wheels and 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 um, and other iconic things to do with theme parks. But um, the the thing that I'm thinking about most was uh, the ice cream cone was invented at the World's Fair. The idea of a of a cone sh- of a easy to hold shape that can hold food that you want to eat while you're walking around looking at other things that was invented at the world's fair and the world's fair as a as a theme park maybe deserves its own um deserves its own conversation and its own episode but um but so uh, what i'm saying is to to go along with your thesis statement theme parks and food and themed spaces have have they've always been uh, a symbiotic relationship yeah, definitely. And I guess maybe we should start by answering what may be an obvious question. But why, Alice? Why, why? the food? Why the specific foods that I exist guess at theme parks? First, first, maybe why food at all? Because it, uh, that's to, true. to be to be honest, like food does kind of get in the way of some of the purposes of a theme park. Like it gets in the way of being on a thrill ride, right? You can't you can't ride a roller coaster with a hot dog in your hand, no matter how perfect and portable the the dog on a bun is. Like, <laughs> right. it's not going to happen for you. Sure, you got to finish it before you before you go on. Right. So, like, why the food in the first place? I guess you bring food into a park uh, like that uh, to keep people in the park for longer. They're not leaving in the middle of the day to go eat. Uh, it's a money maker, an easy money maker, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess food preparation and consumption is a pretty complicated system, but it's no more complicated than the construction and maintenance of a ride. So it's comparatively simple. And yeah, I think I think you're right. When you get a lot of people together and you want them to be in a place for more than a couple of minutes at a time, having food and drink nearby is a great idea. Um, it keeps people happy. It keeps people uh, in the same place. It gives people a chance to socialize about something. Um, and and food is fun, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Food, I mean, food is a fun thing. It's a fun. It's a social thing too. To share a meal with someone with your loved ones. Uh, it it's fun. Like the food itself can be fun, but also the um the experience of sharing food is is also fun. Yeah, I think so. I guess I guess food can also be pretty boring. It can be um mundane, right? But I think there's there's this uh this attitude at theme parks, uh especially with some of the more classic theme park foods like the hot dog, like the ice cream cone, uh that these are fun treats and like you should be kind of excited to be eating this. Um cotton candy comes to mind. Uh, kind of the carnival foods, like uh, yeah. ooh, like a like a caramel apple, ooh um, yes, and, and things like that. Where where the the food is kind of almost a novelty in and of itself. Where the food is part of the experience, and it's like a fun, exciting thing to eat that you don't get to eat all the time, either because it's like kind of bad for you, or because it's like kind of difficult to prepare, um, and you can't just like walk down to the store and get this food, but. Do you really think that difficult to prepare describes many theme park foods at all, actually? I yeah, no, I don't think so. It's it's not food that you don't 
It's food that you don't eat every day, but it's not because you can't make yourself a churro at home. Like, you you can. But uh, you know what? I, I don't think I can. I mean, you could learn. I suppose I could learn how, <laughs> but, but I, I, I really think I would be bad at it. But it's like a special food that you that you eat when you're at Disneyland, for example. You grab yeah. yourself a churro because it's a it's a treat. You are treating yourself by being at a theme park, and then you also treat yourself on top by indulging in sugary or fried foods. I, I have a, another theory that just kind of popped into my head, Alice. Uh, I feel like a lot of the foods at theme parks are a direct result of the implementation of like assembly line and mechanization technology that was definitely really popular at like the turn of the century, including at things like World's Fairs, where they were showing off like all of the wonders of technology. So Mm -hmm. like, and now observe as we spin the sugar into strings and like (laughs) cotton candy. You don't have a cotton candy machine at home because that's ludicrous. Because it's like a very specialized piece of machinery. You don't have a popcorn machine at home. You can make well, you popcorn could, at home. Well, you could get like a little popcorn machine at home. But you don't I have guess like. You could. Yeah, I, I mean they 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 sell those with like little like uh like tabletop ones. Yeah. But the big ones with the with the huge pots and the that you see like on carts like scattered throughout theme parks. That yeah, that's specialty specialty equipment well that's special popcorn too it's like very good yeah they can yeah it is very good um i think that goes to um to something that i i I think is an important part of of like why foods get chosen to be um mass produced at a theme park and it's the idea of mass production you have to be able to mass produce food uh if you're going to serve it to your thousands and thousands of visitors that's true. Um, you you also have to make that food portable. Yeah, so, I think there's definitely like a shape a shape like requirement. Like if you want to be one of the iconic theme park foods, you have to be holdable, mm-hmm. like grippable in one hand, <laughs> uh, and you have to have an easy way for that to be managed, right? So like a stick or a cone or a bun. Or like a, a piece of wax paper, like all of those things, those work for this idea. Yeah, and and I think part of that too might be like if you were if you were the general manager of Disneyland, and uh, and you were or trying to organize space and flow and uh, you know audience, you know um, like guest control and and all like crowd control. You do not want suddenly in the middle of the day for lunchtime uh, to have your 20 plus thousand visitors just like sit down. <laughs> you don't just want them everybody to... at the bell. Please sit. <laughs> because you want them to be able to continue to walk around and enjoy the place. You don't want to have to factor in a few thousand chairs uh, for everyone to just use it once. I agree that that sounds kind of ludicrous as well. Like this idea that that. The theme park food should have a sense of flow to it, a sense of motion. Uh, yes. a really effective theme park food does this. And, and, you know, Disneyland especially has branched out a little bit in some of these ways. Um, I'm thinking about one of my personal favorite theme park foods, uh, the kebabs at the Bengal Barbecue in Adventureland, mm. um, which are on sticks, 
And so if I wanted to, I could carry them around, but I, I typically try to sit down and eat them because they, they do have a lot of sauce on them. So they're not perfect in that way, right? But food on a stick is good. So your corn dogs, your kebabs, um, your uh, your turkey legs, which come with a built-in stick, <laughs> That's uh, true. nature's stick. Nature's <laughs> stick. Um, your cotton candy, lollipops. Uh, yeah, things that things that can just be held in one hand while you navigate the park uh, with your with your loved ones. Yeah, uh, and and you know, obviously, at certain theme parks, there's uh, there's an opportunity for fancier sit-down food. I mean, to go back to your Knott's, Knott's Berry Farm example, the chicken dinner restaurant, so it wasn't as efficient as it needed to be, which started the necessity for the theme park. So, like, by being a slower kind of a meal, it invited waiting for the meal, which invited needing entertainment along the way. Yeah. No, so that's, you're, that's kind uh, of you're a reverse right. relationship. You're, yeah, you're you're right because the theme park sprung around the food uh, rather than it there being a theme park and oh now we need to feed our visitors. Um, so yeah, that's a really good point that that. But now as it as it is the like industrialization of the restaurant indus- industry means they can produce this food a lot faster. You can take your chicken to go if you want to. You sure, do not you have to sit down and home. eat it. You can take it oh. home. But it is now, yeah, it is a lot more uh, portable and accessible now. But uh, it, it, it's also like the chicken dinner restaurant specifically uh, or, or other sit down restaurants at theme parks serve like a whole different purpose than I mean, there's the portable food and then there's the sit down and enjoy it food. That's a that's a completely different conversation. I agree. I think I think for the for the moment we should stick with the portable foods because I think there's there's a few more things to say about it and we can jump into restaurants and stuff in a second. So here's my big question. Uh, as often we do, I would like to focus on Disneyland because <laughs> we're very familiar with it and it seems to have the the biggest like example of this happening. Yes. How does food go from an easy to carry treat or something tasty to snack on between rides. Uh, how does it go from that, which is a really obvious kind of a relationship between the consumer and the food uh, to an icon? How do we go from uh, the Dole Whip stand where you can get your ice cream and it's very good to a pin of the Dole Whip, but with like cute anime eyes? Or t-shirts or like... Yeah, a t-shirt of the Dole Whip and like you represent the Dole Whip guild. Or like uh, like a YouTube video about the Dole Whip or like... Cosplaying as Dole Whip. Right, or like a new flavor of the Dole Whip and that like like either making or ruining your day, depending. And, And like, how do we go from it's a pretty good ice cream to there's a merchandise line and also it's an icon of the theme park and you can't leave without it. I, uh, the, I genuinely don't know. <laughs> this, is the, this is the same case for a lot of things at Disneyland. Uh, the Mickey pretzel, the Mickey the bar. Mickey ice cream sandwich, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the, um, the churro in general, mm-hmm. which is odd because a churro is a like culturally relevant and important food for a few people, a few, a few million people around the world. 
<laughs> and for some reason, Disneyland and churros are conflated for a lot of other people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, I, last time I was at Disneyland, there was an entire shirt line for donuts, which, Alice, I don't even think are, like, a big deal at Disneyland. Like, I don't think I there's didn't... a donut shop. I didn't think they were either. Like, I could not tell you right now where to walk into Disneyland and find a, and eat a donut. Like, I, I, do, I don't know the answer to Disney that. Disney donut doesn't doesn't ring a bell. Now, beignets ring a bell. Mickey beignets ring a bell. Mm-hmm. But beignets that's, ring a bell. That's different than uh, a donut. And and something else I I want to I want to ask you. Um, when do you when do you in your history of being an annual pass holder and then a cast member and now just a fan of Disneyland, uh, when do you remember turkey legs becoming a thing? Oh, man. See, that's that's a crazy question. I don't think it was until I was a cast member. And that's when Oh yeah, I got... That's when I became aware of the turkey legs. But the first time I ever had a turkey leg was at a Renaissance festival while I was in college. Yeah, me too. And that's when I became aware of turkey legs as a, a thing at a themed environment to eat. Yeah, and, and I thought I it was a Renaissance to, Fair thing. Yeah, and then I went to Disneyland and suddenly it showed up. And I, I do not remember them being a thing when we were children. And yet, it, it seems like the turkey legs are eternal and iconic as well. Like, gotta get your uh, Disneyland turkey leg. And apparently have been around in Orlando in Disney World since the 80s. And, uh, and I had no idea. Alice, are, are they actually turkey? Are they not emu? They are not emu. They are actually turkey. I've heard that um, they are a, a distant cousin of turkey, but one that nobody ever wants to name for some reason. I don't... Like a turkey-adjacent bird? As, as far as anyone will say <laughs> and admit, turkey legs are just turkey. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> I, that's, I mean, there was a rumor going around for a while that they were emu, but I... No one seems to be uh, admitting that. So yeah, this, this I'm going to say I'm going to go ahead and say they're turkey. This feels almost like a glitch in the matrix, like like a piece of revisionist history. Like turkey legs have always been a big deal. What do you mean the iconic Disneyland turkey leg? You haven't heard of that? And yet, Alice, you and I grew up there practically. And I honestly, the turkey leg doesn't ring a bell as a thing that's been there for a long time. It does not, and yet merchandise t-shirt line pins uh, uh fandoms uh cosplays uh it's it's a turkey like has become such an important part of the disney food fandom it seemingly overnight to me it feels like it was overnight but apparently has it's they've been serving turkey legs in on disney property for 30 years that's and, that does not track. It does not compute. I do I not does, agree. It does not seem to track or compute, but I think that the rise of the popularity of a Disney food fandom for the Dole Whip, for the pretzel, for the churro, for the turkey leg, and the pins and the t-shirts and the purses and the everything to go with it, I think that the fandom around those things and the visibility of the fandom around those things did not become a thing until Instagram was a thing. Do you maybe, agree? Maybe not Instagram specifically, but certainly the sharing of trips on social media. This idea that the that the treat stands in for the experience and um, and becomes a part of it that 
is both shareable and personal and that also shouldn't be missed, uh, I think is a, a big part of why we even think about these foods as iconically Disney. I, I think it has a lot to do with this uh, conspicuous consumption of theme parks um, and and the the symbol of the food being a thing that you you can share and rally behind and and kind of be like oh every time I go to Disneyland I get my Dole Whip and you should too because it like completes my experience yeah and, and I don't know to me personally I am already spending enough money to get to Disneyland. I try not to spend all my money on various snacks while I'm there. Because <laughs> um, it, it can really add up. If I was um, if, if I was in the Disney food fandom and I decided that every time that I enter a Disney park, I have to eat a Dole Whip and a pretzel and a churro, churro and a turkey leg and try all the specialty foods that come up at like Epcot Food and Wine Festival or, uh, you know, like new and and exciting foods. And now with Star Galaxy's Edge coming, I'm thinking I've got to try the blue milk and I've got to try the fancy cocktails. And um, if I did that every time that I went or if if that was like such an important if I if that was important to me, I'd spend a lot of money at Disneyland. <laughs> Much yeah, more than I already do. You would, and I, I think I think there's certainly that aspect of it. There's this this um, capitalist desire to like constantly innovate and you know play on the novelty, but also the familiarity, which is such an interesting like spectrum of novelty to familiarity. So it's like buy this churro, but it's a lightsaber churro. And, and cool. like, where does it land on that spectrum? But I want to eat that. <laughs> right? That sounds good. Um, and see, that's the thing is, it's not like the food is bad. And it's not like the food shouldn't be celebrated. But it's an odd symptom, almost, of this, this current way that we view theme parks. This idea that, um, that new is good and novel is good. And also, I you know yearn for nostalgia and the goodness of that so also i want to choose my snack and also show off which snack i chose it's almost like a badge of honor yeah to show off what snack i chose show off what snack fandom i'm in it's like a only true disney fans know the wonder of the dole whip for example <laughs> it's like a very classic one like it's like a if you don't know what a dole whip is oh you don't know you don't know what the Dole Whip is? Well, you must not come to Disney very often or you must not have done your research or, you know. Oh, you it's didn't like hear a, about yeah, the like Dole a, Whip. Like a badge of honor. Yeah, almost. It, it's a, Maybe it, it's to go kind of back to our layers of experience. It's kind of one of the layers. It's what food do you eat at Disneyland? Do you get the basic hamburger or do you know where to find the good stuff? Um, the new exciting thing. Or do you know where to find the stuff that's tried and true and special Disneyland food, even if that special Disneyland food, again, is just a, a churro. Um, and, you know, I eat beignets when I go to Disneyland, but I eat them from the Jazz Kitchen and they're not shaped like Mickey's. I uh, love the Jazz Kitchen. I love I, the Jazz Kitchen on Downtown Disney. I, I really do love it. And I wonder if they would taste better if they were Mickey shaped. Do they? Maybe. Uh, they might, I right? I don't know. But fun fact, I took a friend there that was born and raised in Louisiana. Okay. And I, I 
I took her there and was like, hey, let's sit down. Let's eat here. She was feeling a little homesick. Mm. And she said the beignets that they served there were the among the best beignets that she had ever had. Wow. She said they were as good, if not better, than a lot of the ones back home. Dang. So, uh, so if you are looking for an authentic beignet in Southern California, apparently that's the place to go. I, I guess. <laughs> so there's there's that. Now, I, I want to talk a little bit about... Uh, about theming and the connection between themed areas and spaces and certain foods. And you were already kind of getting there with your talk of galaxy's edge, which is, ah, oh, geez, like 48 hours from being available to the public. Um, oh my God. Or maybe, maybe even less than that. So as we, as we record here on um, May 29th, 2019, it, it opens first thing in the morning on the 31st. Right. So and uh, yeah, we're so close to to knowing what those things taste like, what they look like, if they're worth buying, if they're, you know, like, but like that, that to me as genuinely, I've never been so excited to, to know about a theme park food ever, never. Uh, And it's mostly just because it's Star Wars, man, I love Star Wars so much. (laughs) Right. And I, I feel like, I feel like maybe this is this is showing off where opportunities have maybe been missed uh because of the needs of theme park food that we talked about the portability and the the mass producibility yeah we have maybe only now realized that the food can be part of the story and it can draw you in as an authentic like piece of the place that you're visiting uh a, an early example, perhaps, uh, maybe a prototype of, of this st- Star Wars stuff is the butterbeer at Wizarding World of Harry Potter. Yes. So, oh, the first time we visited the Wizarding World of Harry Potter, we went straight for the butterbeer. The butterbeer was what it was all about. And I had one, but I think you had two. <laughs> I might have had three. <laughs> and, <laughs> that first visit, I yeah. think I tried hot, cold and frozen. Wow. Um and it, it's good, right? It's like a good food. It's a good drink. I'm, I'm a big fan. Uh, but it's not. It's a. It's a. It's an interesting drink served at various temperatures. That is a flavor that you can't get many places. But it's not like. It's not so special, is it? Like it's not. not no. it, there's nothing about it that makes it impossible, or that makes it like supremely fictional or anything like that no i could probably make a comparable version in my home but however then i wouldn't be drinking it while looking up at hogwarts castle at the same time right that's extremely important yeah and and that that ability that possibility to eat like the characters of the world or to drink like the characters of the world in this case and in the case of galaxy's edge um that deepens the story and it deepens the experience and to to kind of go back one episode to our our talk about tours and tourism uh it's kind of like that too it's like eating the local dish in this faraway magical land um it's kind of like experiencing that the difference being that it's a vastly constructed under very specific circumstances, sort of a, sort of a thing, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It's not eating paella on the coast of Spain, 
where paella was invented because the ingredients for paella were traditionally caught and available in the coast of Spain. It's eating meat cooked on a pod racer because (laughs) it was a story that was being told that pod racers were being, you know, repurposed into grills. And this is what this place is doing at this outpost. So, like, enjoy this. And it's like, it's this. constructed. Yeah. It's not real. Yeah, it's not. But but that doesn't make it any less immersive. It doesn't make it any less like adding to the experience, this idea of being somewhere else in a fully realized location. The mind makes it real, even. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> Do you think that's air you're breathing? <laughs> exactly. Do you think that's I mean, real blue milk you're drinking? I mean, we are laughing. We're laughing because we're big Matrix fans, but also, like, the, I mean, I'm not. I'm, I'm joking, but also not. Like your your brain and your immersion and your like participation in the fiction is what makes it real to you. Yeah, it's no less special or important if it's if that's what is meaningful to you. I agree. And I think I think there's something to be said for engaging more senses in your audience in, in making an immersive immersive experience. So like right. we also it's not just what you look at. Right. We connect with taste and smell in some ways more than we connect with our other senses. I mean, when people talk about Splash Mountain water and the smell of that and how it takes them immediately back to the first time they rode Splash Mountain. For me, it's Caribbean or Pirates of the Caribbean. For me, it's uh, Star Tours hydraulics. And that is such a special smell. And sometimes I get into random elevators that smell like that. And I'm like, oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But speaking of Pirates of the Caribbean, I would like to use this. Well, hang on. Hang on a second. Alice, I, I feel like maybe for this next part, we should step into my office because this oh. is um, this is some some very uh, deep lore that oh, I don't okay. necessarily um, want to share with us. Here, I'll. Um, yeah, no, I'll, no, no, I, I understand. Let me get right. the door. OK. Uh, so welcome to my office. Uh, as you can see, it's a swamp. Uh, If you look over there, there's a log. And if you look over there, it's not a log. It's an alligator. Oh, ooh. And if you listen very closely, you might even be able to hear somebody playing Oh Susanna on the banjo. (laughs) Very slowly. Oh, oh, well, well, there it is. Wow. Wow. Very uh, ambient. Yeah. Um, Now, it's, it's very dark and there are some fireflies around. And I feel like... I feel like this whole scene kind of needs something. Can I put an aside inside your aside? Um, sure. Just where really where are we going? Uh, I no, it's we'll just stay right here. Um, I just want to point at your um beautiful fireflies just really fast. Um, do you know that growing up in Southern California, I didn't know that fireflies actually like existed <laughs> until like I'm that sorry, fireflies. What? <laughs> The fireflies, I never ever seen a firefly um, outside of Pirates of the Caribbean. Really? Um, until I was like 14 years old. Wow. 
never. Not n- one time. Alice, it's it's my policy not to shame people for learning new things uh, at their own pace because everybody's experience is unique. And you know, you know that I've had my share of um finding out really obvious things at very late times in my life so far yes uh and i'm sure there's many things i don't know that i don't know yet but fireflies are like very confirmed to be very real in many ways i I knew they were real but like when you see one in real life and you realize that it looks exactly like just that little pinprick of light on the end of a wire like it is in pirates of the caribbean and you realize that like that, that, that's not just like decoration or like a cool thing like oh it's a oh yeah yeah fireflies or, or whatever but to, to like know and confirm that they're real and they really look exactly like that is just mind-bending to anyone who grows up in an area with no fireflies and then sees them for the first time it's like magic yeah i guess i i wouldn't have ever seen fireflies if i didn't regularly ch- uh, travel to illinois when i was growing up yeah, no, where, I never did. Where I was able to like catch fireflies in a jar and stuff if it was the right yeah. season. Yeah, I caught my first firefly at like 22. Oh my gosh! Wow. Yeah. Um. Anyways, that's just just a quick aside about how special Pirates of the Caribbean is. It is really special. So, anyways, as you've get correctly guessed, we're in the Pirates of the Caribbean, the attraction at Disneyland. Yes, yes. Um, I love that you've made it your office. Uh, yeah, and you know, so we're sitting here, kind of in in the like uh, knee deep water. Uh, kind of sitting here at my desk and uh, it just feels kind of like this whole thing is missing like a component like a a thing about it that would kind of serve as a a side attraction almost a a sort of a a deepening of the connection of the audience to the attraction a sort of a like a gathering place a a place where you could feel like the, the attraction was really like real and permanent and that you could be kind of close to it but also like not on it at the same time you know what I mean uh, yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. So, like, I feel like a space here um, where people can um, go and see, maybe see the see the ride from a, a different angle. Um, and, and, and so when you're on the ride, you see this space. And when you're in the space, you see the ride. And that it, yeah, it, deepening the connection was a really good way to put it, of yeah, putting it. Like, it, to it, really, like, establish this, this space as special yeah and if we if we do it just right uh they might even kind of lend each other this sense of ambience and i'm i'm thinking about like you you really enjoyed the firefly and and you can hear the the oh susanna um and i'd I'd just like you to turn your head um 30 degrees to your left Uh uh-huh whoa what's that (laughs) over there (laughs) Uh, this is called the blue bayou restaurant and it's amazing and it's 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 amazing that took a long time to get there here we are a long time to get there and i just i cannot believe i didn't notice it just right there right there the whole time yeah there it is wow what a beautiful restaurant it's a great restaurant and alice i i guess my big question is you know, the Blue Bayou is great. It's unquestionably a huge part of the appeal of the the opening moments of Pirates of the Caribbean, like waving to people at the Blue Bayou or sitting at the Blue Bayou and waving to people on the boats. Um, you know, it's a fancier sit down restaurant. It's a, it's a real experience to be in there. No matter what time of day you eat there, it feels like it's night in the Caribbean. Uh, it's beautiful. It's a really, really great piece of uh, environmental storytelling. And why don't 
all the rides have this, I guess, is my <laughs> real question. Like, I, I really wish that there were more examples of this sort of thing, specifically at Disneyland, but just in places in general. I think maybe it is so special and cool because it is unique and special. It's if every ride had a restaurant built into it, it wouldn't be um, it wouldn't be so awesome anymore. I guess. I mean, it is part of what makes Pirates of the Caribbean special, right? It's it's that there's there's this attached restaurant and it almost feels like a secret because the Blue Bayou's entrance is, you know, around the corner down a street kind of next to Club 33, which is another part of what adds to its mystique. Uh, it feels like Club 33 light. <laughs> and it's... But you always see it every time. And I remember when we, when we were like kids and, and, and teenagers, we could say, oh man, we've never eaten there. Like that, that place is, we should, we should eat there someday. Maybe someday we'll be able to afford to eat there. <laughs> yeah. And, and of course that someday eventually arrived and it was, it was great. Um, in, and mm -hmm. speaking of treats, like, it really felt like an extra treat. Like, you're eating next to this perfect, iconic ride. Oh, perfect isn't the right word. <laughs> you're eating next to this extremely important ride that you've been on dozens of times. And, and here you are having a meal next to it. Like, wow, this is a treat. This is real. Um, yeah. And I feel like that that just speaks to a quality of certain theme park food experiences. This idea that uh, they can be elevated not just by the flavor or by the kind of food, but how we eat it and, and how we experience the specific culinary thing. Um, and there are only a few examples in Disneyland where, where things get kind of close to this. Um, there's, uh, there's, oh man, do you remember the French fry wagon outside of Big Thunder Mountain? Oh my god, do I? And there was something about the fries from the wagon that were really special, even though they were exactly just normal McDonald's French fries. They were always just really fresh. Yeah, I guess that's what it was, is that they were coming right out of the fryer in the wagon, right? Like, that's it. It was that they were hot and fresh. Um, but yeah, but that wagon was was themed to you know where you were right next to Big Thunder Mountain, and there was like a like a covered wagon right there, and the covered wagon had McDonald's French fries in it. Man, that was cool. Yeah, that was cool, um, but it was also kind of odd. Like it, it doesn't really fit the Old West theme, does it? Not really. No. I mean, the, except the food that, that they were serving out of right. the food they were serving out of the wagon had nothing to do with where you were. Right. But it was um, an interesting, like, themed dining experience. Uh, a couple of other things that spring to mind are, like, Main Street, because Main Street is a main street. Um, <laughs> so there are little shops and restaurants that have really special kind of old-timey Americana foods. Yeah, like a soda fountain on the corner, and, yeah. and, and, and you can get your hot dog or your ice cream or whatever. Like, it's, a, it's like a... Yeah, like a... Well, this is just normal old American yeah. cuisine. And I mean, and speaking of connecting with smells and taste, tastes, like walking down Main Street and getting your first whiff of all the Disneyland snacks at once. Usually <laughs> for me, it's popcorn, then probably like ice cream cones, like the smell of cooking cones. Like the waffle, like yeah. the waffle cones that are being cooked. Yeah. yeah. Disney is really, Disney has always been and just is really really good about controlling every inch of the environment that you're in 
And and like you said, they they know that what you're looking at is is almost nothing without what you're what you are smelling and what you are tasting and what you are touching and feeling that like it can look pretty forever and what you're hearing you know you look pretty forever but like without the music and the smells and the you know the general the other parts of of the ambiance it just is just a street it's just a place so disney will pump in smells they'll pump in smells like they pump in music to a lot of different parts of the park uh it's just a thing that they that they do uh, casinos do it for everybody like <laughs> a lot of places do that but like but it's not just a theme park but like a lot of places like deliberately control every uh, you know other senses that you have to to uh, affect you to change to change your mind and change your um you know, your experience to make your experience more, you know, better. I agree. I guess that kind of brings us to a, so like, what's it all about then? And I I think, I think we're kind of already there and it's this, it's that food and drink at theme parks are not just consumable fun treats or they can be that, but they can also be much more. And being able to have these things, these experiences at the parks, I think brings out the best parts of being at a theme park Uh, that honestly, if they're not being delivered on well, the theme park feels lesser than it feels less special. Yeah, it 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 would. It, It is. It has become. A very integral part of the experience and yes and the fandom and um and necessity and and all of that but just to have to have a a a snack or an experience or a you know a drink or something that is tied to your enjoyment of the day to 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 turn your to turn your fun day at a theme park into a full body experience yeah is special i guess that's part of what makes theme parks like such a such an amazing form of media is that there's no other form of media that engages every sense uh not even virtual reality can claim that yet um yet yet but like you know nothing nothing is as experienced as being in a theme park uh and food and drink really tie that idea together. Uh, Alice, I've got one last question for you. Go ahead. You can build a Blue Bayou mm-hmm. restaurant, or t- type restaurant, a Blue Bayou type restaurant, and connect it to any attraction anywhere uh, in the world. Ooh. And you can't say the Haunted Mansion. Because Dang that's, it. that's really obvious. And of course you want to eat at the Haunted Mansion. Don't be silly. I want to eat my dining room in the Haunted Mansion. Okay. <laughs> um, okay, maybe this one might be too obvious, but I'd really like to have um, like cafeteria style dining in the Great Hall at Hogwarts. Oh my God. No, that's not too obvious. Wow, <laughs> that's a huge missed opportunity. Oh my gosh. I mean, like to... 
pretend like you're a student and sit down and the ceilings there and the you know you you could choose your house table that you sit at and... and it's not that hard to replicate that like any food you want as much as you want feeling that we get when we're reading the books or when we're watching the movies because off on the sides you would have these trays and of food that were constantly refilling yeah, if it was, I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily think that a buffet is a good idea. Um, that might be uh, too much in the mass production uh, side of, of um, theme park food. Um, just, but I mean, maybe it is. Maybe it's a buffet and you sit down at a house table and you can eat as much as you want, as much as the house elves keep bringing you food. You can just eat. And then you could have like animatronic elves. Okay, so are you ready to hear my themed restaurant idea? Yes, very much. It's the Haunted Mansion. No, stop it! <laughs> you told me I couldn't choose the Haunted Mansion. You're right, you're right. Ugh, fine. So I want to keep it in Disneyland, and something that I think would be really interesting is a, a honest-to-goodness space-themed restaurant. Like, sci-fi, yes. sci-fi 1999, like... In, in the distant year of the year 2000, like <laughs> what space food would be like. And Tomorrowland has the space and it could use something like that. I get if, I guess if I was attaching it to something, it would probably be Space Mountain. Uh, like a you could do Dippin' Dots, Ice Cream of the Future. You could do, you yeah, know, like, like retro futuristic, retro futuristic foods only. So everything is freeze dried and um, well, you can do it like an auto, like the what's the automat? Like back in the back in the in the fifties, where you there would be food behind the little window. Oh and you yes, could put absolutely. In your, put in your coin, and it spits out a sandwich or something. Yeah, and it would it cool. would be so cool. And then and then what you do is you turn around while you're sitting there, and you've got these big viewing ports where you can see That's the space, space Mountain cars going by, and <gasps> and you've got so cool. you've got all the lights and the stars of Space Mountain, and you've got these spaceships flying by. Super fast. Um, yeah, it would it would just be like Space Mountain is already supposed to be a space station um, that you kind of like launch from and then go back to as like that's the conceit. It's like Space Station eighty seven or something like that. Um, like that's the story. I feel like this would really complete that implied story. Like here you are on the station. Like, just eating at the station mess hall. While you're waiting for your ride, or you've just come back from your ride, you yeah, like a mess hall. Yeah. That'd be awesome. And I, I guess it's interesting that both of us kind of went to cafeteria-style mess halls instead of, like, high dining. And I think that's because that's maybe my big gripe with the Blue Bayou, is that it's very limited capacity, it's very expensive, so it, it kind of feels like a, a limited kind of gated off part of the Disneyland experience. Like, it's only for certain guests. Yeah. Um, where I feel like themed dining uh, could be so much more accessible if the food wasn't more expensive than it was anywhere else and if the seating style was way more open. Um, a really successful recent addition was the uh, Tropical Hideaway in Adventureland. Uh, the food there's amazing, it's got a view of uh, of the Jungle Cruise, and uh, the theming is really, really great. And you can listen to Rosita tell jokes. <laughs> and also, it fits like a bajillion people. Like <laughs> that's it, good. 
Yeah. Capacity is good. It's yeah. really important. So, so not only does it feel special, but it can feel special for a bunch of people. And that's just, that should be the goal, shouldn't it? That's like the highest aspiration. Make it feel special for the most people possible. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. Uh, not exclusivity, but inclusivity. Yeah. Well, Alice, it sounds like our conversation about theme parks and food and their unique relationship has come to an end. But the conversation does continue online. That's right, um, especially with uh, park food, because we've got an entire channel for it on our Discord server. Yeah, I mean, this conversation, you know, this this topic popped up on the Discord server with some of our friends of the pod there. Uh, and it, it, it really just kept burrowing its way into my mind. Like, why is theme park food the way it is and what makes it so special? Uh, so... If you want to be part of conversations like that, you've got to find our Discord server. It's a very exclusive group of people who click on a link on our Twitter pages. <laughs> yeah, that's very exclusive group. Uh, home to uh, some amazing listeners who uh, have really done a lot to shape this podcast and uh, shape the conversation, especially uh, around this conversation specifically. I don't think I would have thought about it as hard if it weren't for this Discord server. So if you are interested in joining uh, our discord or just talking to us in general you should hit us up on our twitter we are collectively the show on twitter at happy places pod and i am on twitter and on instagram uh at alice white thp for those happy places and i'm at buddy underscore duquesne duquesne is spelled d-u-q-u-e-s-n-e and if you're a fan of the show you should absolutely check out our patreon Ooh. Yes, our Patreon. Patreon.com slash Those Happy Places really does a lot to keep the show running and to um, help us find the, the the time and resources to make the show uh, the best that we can. And we really uh, just wouldn't exist without our, our wonderful, our wonderful, wonderful patrons. Uh, speaking of, we should take a moment to thank our patrons who have reached the tier of thanking them on the episode. Yes, uh, our wonderful friends T.H. Ponders and Charles Castine. They are both at the $7 or higher level on, on Patreon, and so they get a special thanks. And if that sounds like something that you would like, you can uh, join us too. So that's, once again, that is uh, patreon.com slash those happy places. But even if you are not able to contribute monetarily, we really love and appreciate you. That's right. Now, Alice, right now, our audience is hearing our theme music. Our theme music, which is uh, Golden Gate by the California Feetwormers featuring Phil Alvin. Yes, it is. You can find this and other great tracks at www.CaliforniaFeetWormers.com. And if you're interested, I also added some additional music to this episode. Where would you have gotten that additional music from? I found it all on the free music archive, Incompetech.com. Thank you so much to Kevin McLeod internet composer and uh, man about town <laughs> Alice thank you so much for doing this episode with me buddy thank you so much for leading the conversation and uh, dragging me kicking and screaming into having it I uh, <laughs> uh, am grateful for you and your and your big brain <laughs> it wouldn't be a conversation worth having without your insights Alice that's what it's all about with this podcast friendship huh <laughs> Aww. And to everyone out there, thank you for listening, and I hope you return to those happy places. 